Welcome back to Art Holes, everybody. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is a podcast about art and art history with someone who has absolutely no authority to speak on either topic. Uh, if you like the show so far, do me a favor, scroll down to whatever podcast app you're using and throw me five stars. Uh, it's stupid, I know, but it's how podcast metrics are measured, otherwise I wouldn't ask. I realized at the end of last episode that following a boxcar hobo rape with shilling for an iTunes review would be a little gauche, uh, so I held off until now. And speaking of last episode, oof, that was sort of a rough one, and that ended very poorly for Jackson. I can't even imagine what that train trip was like. But as Jackson started to come around, he not only had a weird trip down memory lane in his first trip back, but he saw that the Great Depression had finally hit his family. Leroy was having issues finding work, even though he was already out west where there were more jobs. Uh, Leroy at this point, though he deserves a bunch of shit, he's the only reason why the Pollocks are just now starting to even feel the Great Depression. He's been on that rasher of bacon and moonshine diet doing the of mice and men thing, so everything he's been earning is going back to the family. Uh, Leroy is not thrilled about Jackson being in art school. That's a little, you know, in his eyes, and he lets Jackson know that. Which is also a little rich. Uh, All-male road crews away from their families for long periods of time and then throw in a warm fire in the cool desert nights and a bunch of liquor? Please. I wish I knew how to quit you. Jackson visited some old friends from the manual arts and Schwankowski days. He didn't really reconnect with any of them because he never really did initially. So everybody was like, oh, that crazy asshole is back. So Jackson would just be hanging out, drinking with all, you know, that high school crew. And one time he drunkenly tried to sexually assault a woman named Pauline, who stopped it after, quote, a brief awkward struggle. So, so that's definitely a crime. Charles eventually convinced Jackson to leave Los Angeles and come back to New York and take classes at the League and crash on his and Elizabeth's couch. Uh, Charles knew that Leroy's constant rejection of Jackson's life choices, Stella's babying him, it was just not healthy. Elizabeth, Charles's girlfriend, she's not too thrilled about Jackson coming back to New York and also probably wasn't happy that Charles offered the couch. Elizabeth knew that Jackson was trying to overtake Charles at the League, and she knew that the whole family babied him way too much. Of Jackson, Elizabeth said, quote, I never heard him carry on a logical conversation in which one-on-one -on -one added up to two. Elizabeth, not a huge fan of Jackson. She sees the entire dysfunction and that nobody puts Jackson in check, and she also thinks that he's dangerous and completely out of control, which is probably right. Frank is also in New York, and he met someone named Marie, and they're dating now, and Marie will develop an opinion on Jackson shortly. Uh, so right now the couples are Sandy and Arloy, Charles and Elizabeth, and Frank and Marie. And if it helps you remember names and relationships, I associate Frank with Marie because they sound like Italian grandparents from New Jersey. Hey Marie! Get in the fucking car! With Jackson back at the league, Thomas Hart Benton is really taking to Jackson as a pupil. He's giving Jackson private lessons. He's really trying to help this poor bastard out. Jackson's like 19, 20 years old at this point. I guess you could characterize these as his college years. Benton's wife, Rita, also started to spend a lot more time with Jackson. She'd make sure that she had little jobs for him to do to come over the house, you know, maybe fix that leaky sink, maybe lift something heavy for her because she just can't do it on her own. Because not only was Rita very maternal towards Jackson, but she also noticed that he was turning into just a very strapping young man. 
She would always be touching Jackson when he was helping with the chores. She would, you know, talk to him in a very sultry voice. So that maternal relationship that Jackson got to experience with Rita, well, that changed a little bit. And it's going to get kind of weird pretty immediately. Another of the students of the League said Rita was, quote, a very flirtatious woman, very vivacious, very Mediterranean. She had a way of making you feel as you sat at a table with 20 other people that she had cooked this meal especially for you. But Rita was like this with a lot of students. Rita was very friendly. For example, soon after Frank moved out to New York, Rita took a liking to him. One night when everybody was out at a club in Harlem, people were getting super drunk and everybody was watching a male stripper named Snake Hips do his routine. No shit, that was his actual name. And Rita started to rub Frank's knee. And Frank's assessment of the situation was, quote, She had an angular face and polished skin, black hair and sparkling eyes, a voluptuous Italian, very voluptuous. Her lips were different than mother's. Fucking gross. And the Pollock boys would also comment on Rita's large breasts and how they reminded them of Stella's, quote, ample bosom. So when brothers collectively go, yeah, Rita's got big tits just like mom, you would imagine we've hit peak weirdness with this family. But don't worry, we haven't even come close. But here's the deal with Rita. She very likely knows that her husband is very attracted to men. Maybe she didn't at first, which would... Just be weird, but she has to know at this point. He wants to misogynistically dominate her, but snack on rustic little gnocchi. But society dictates that if Rita doesn't get married, and stay married for that matter, life's going to be really rough. Being a single woman back then was not easy, so she's stuck in a marriage that neither of them probably wanted. And I don't believe in cheating as a general matter, but there's something about this that feels different because of the times. I hope she just went out and drenched herself in other dudes, just getting Sunday morning blasted by a nice butcher's assistant or like a stonemason's assistant. I have no idea, just somebody's assistant, and I have nothing to back that up, that wasn't any of the research, but good for you if that's what's happening. But in that small Benton art world at the League, the other students realized that Rita was someone who wanted to flirt with them, but she wasn't sleeping with anybody. They understood the game, so the other students, they would take her flirting as flattering, but they quickly moved on to actual viable partners. But Jackson, who is socially and emotionally delayed, he doesn't know any better, and he was infatuated with the sexual attention that he was receiving from Rita. His relationship with Thomas and Rita Benton was so edible it feels cliched and hacky. Jackson was desperate for some sort of sexual release with another person, and in his mind, the wife of his mentor was his only shot. You know, the woman whose breasts were like mom's but not her lips. Rita's flirting with Jackson was so heavy that rumors spread throughout the league that they were sleeping together. And everyone was super supportive. They thought Rita having sex with Jackson could be a good thing and make him less weird and unwind the kid a little bit. The other students called their relationship Spaghetti and Sympathy, which is kind of racist and pretty hilarious. Jackson told anyone who would listen that he and Rita were having sex. But they weren't, and he wouldn't admit until like two decades later that nothing ever happened between them. I feel bad because Rita thought that she was encouraging Jackson's sexuality and confidence by flirting with him, but instead it just confused him and he couldn't figure out what was happening and he was just tormented. And it's also so soon after the train. Uh, no one really knows that, but the timing of this is really bad. And just full of sexual frustration and confusion, Jackson fell further and further into alcohol and depression. 
After fumbling through his days trying to figure out art, Jackson was now frequently going on these epic public binges. He would stumble out of bars on almost a nightly basis. He was no longer hiding his drinking. Any money he could scrounge up from Stella or Rita, he would go buy bathtub gin from a bootlegger named Jack Frost. You really can't make this shit up. For like weekend fun events, everyone would go to these local dances, and Jackson would go too. But instead of asking women to dance, he'd just sit there and down bottles of corn liquor. And I imagine just mouth-breathing and staring really creepily. Throughout the winter of 1931, Jackson was getting into fist fights constantly. He's just picking fights with strangers. Then when he was too drunk to walk, he would get arrested and dragged to jail. On Christmas Eve, he and Manuel Toligian were going from party to party, and they came upon a group of worshippers who were walking down the, the streets for like some sort of Christmas Eve ceremony. And Jackson and Manuel joined them, and as they all walked into the Greek Revival Church of the Nativity on 2nd Avenue, Jackson was, he was just moved. As everyone was preparing to pray, Jackson walked up to the altar in front of the church and smashed everything on it. The chalices, the crucifix, candles, he just went apeshit and demolished everything in front of the entire congregation. Then he got arrested. But there's no legal component to this story or anything. We're not about to have a trial portion of the show. This was back when you would have your bail paid and the judge would tell you that he's going to go easy on you and, you know, don't disappoint him because he's sure you're a very nice man. If you were white. Something tells me that if a 20-year-old black guy drunkenly stumbled into that church and started swinging around a giant gold-painted Jesus in front of a bunch of terrified old Greek ladies, this story would have an entirely different ending. And one bitterly cold night later that winter, Jackson and Manuel Tolesian were standing on the dock of the Hudson River. And Jackson was staring down into the icy water and he decided that he was, quote, angry at civilization and he jumped in. Years later, people would say that it was common knowledge at this point that Jackson was suicidal. Yeah, I bet. He sort of had a really bad year. And think about that. The state of mental health back in the early 30s, everybody was like, yeah, 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 that guy's probably going to kill himself. And that was it. Nobody talked about shit. But Jackson made it out alive, thanks to Manuel Tolijin, who had to jump in after him and save his life. Good job, Manuel. I told you that you wouldn't regret being part of this story. So we should probably talk about alcohol for a second. Uh, it's obviously a large part of the story and this family story, and spoiler alert, will continue to be a large part of the story. But no matter how much the story may lend to it, even if it screams for us to use the words alcoholism, we can't use that word. Not for a while. Even if it gets to the point where it's weird that we don't talk about the concept of alcoholism, we need to purposely avoid that term and all that it represents to us today. There was no general understanding that alcoholism was a disease at this point. People just called you a drunk and tried to figure out how to deal with you. Everyone said that Jackson at this point would get mean as soon as he was drunk, and it almost felt like he got drunk just so he could be mean. And again, not a good thing, but totally makes sense. He's never been taught that he can express himself or how to. How many times do you tell a three-year-old to use their words? He's just an apple-juiceless toddler running around hopped up on Jack Frost's special bathtub hooch and repressed anger. And he is in no way properly working through emotionally what happened to him on that train. He also, quote, made women afraid. One night, Frank and Marie and Jackson, everybody was hanging out in Charles and Elizabeth's apartment. This was uh, in 1931, and Marie invited her friend Rose Miller to come over. Rose brought with her a bottle of whiskey, which was awesome because it's the prohibition, so that's like somebody scoring a duffel bag full of meth and giving it to some reclusive forest family in Oregon. 
Marie was sort of new in Frank's life, so she wasn't aware of what alcohol did to the Pollock boys, especially Jackson. If she had, maybe Marie would have told Rose to leave the bottle at home. And as they were all drinking and having a blast, Rose decided that she was kinda into Jackson. She thought he was handsome, a little broody. Everybody said at this point that he looked like a movie star. I'll post a picture so everyone can see. It's, uh, it's from a few years prior. Oh, it's actually a picture of him during the Krishnamurti The Literally Perfect stage, with the open collared shirt and the hair. I should have posted that last episode. So imagine that image, but like two years later. So everyone's hanging out, drinking, having a blast, and everyone could see that Jackson was attracted to Rose. Not because of anything he said, because he didn't really say anything at all, he was just really drunk and started to aggressively grope her. He was just manhandling her. And Marie jumped up and she was like, whoa man, what are you doing? And she grabbed Jackson to get him to stop. And then Jackson went absolutely ballistic, screaming and yelling at the top of his lungs about all kinds of nonsense, just absolutely raging out and wasn't making any sense. He then grabbed an axe from next to the stove, held it over his head and said, quote, you're a nice girl, Marie, and I like you. I would hate to have to chop your head off. Unquote. He then turned to Charles's paintings, one of Charles's paintings that was hanging on the wall, and he smashed it to pieces with the axe. Turns out that was one of Charles's best paintings, and he'd already sold it. It wasn't even his anymore. He just had the, the new owner uh, lend it to him so he could show it at an exhibition. So that hurt the pocketbook a bit, and Charles was furious, and Elizabeth said Jackson had to move out. And that's fair. That's totally fair. Anytime you threaten to decapitate a person and then fuck with someone's rent, it's, it's time to leave. And it was also about this time in the, in, the, in the story that I started to keep track of Jackson's crimes. I know this is an art history podcast, but so far in this story, we have had way more criminal acts than art. We've got two confirmed assaults of PE teachers, countless drunks in public, an attempted sexual assault on a girl named Pauline, destruction of property from the Christmas Eve meltdown in the church, a sexual assault on Rose, and criminal menacing of Marie, the very kind Italian grandmother from Bayonne, New Jersey. The phrase out of control feels almost like an understatement at this point. So Jackson moves out of Charles and Elizabeth's apartment and into Frank's, which I'm sure Marie was very excited about, and Jackson continued his freefall. Stella and Leroy didn't really provide that much support. They both wrote letters to Jackson. Uh, Leroy wrote a letter recommending that he read some articles, and Stella wrote a letter you know, making sure he was getting an adequate diet and getting enough sleep and making sure his wardrobe was appropriate. And I don't know if this is an issue of, of it was just the time or the type of people that Leroy and Stella were, but they were just not equipped to handle whatever Jackson was going through. And the family had ultimately come to the conclusion that Jackson was having, quote, growing up problems, which they believed he would soon grow out of. It was around this time that Thomas Hart Benton received a commission to paint a mural in Indiana. That's the social history of Indiana that we talked about last week as an example of Benton's regionalism. But even before that trip, Jackson was already in the process of a slow burn rejection by Benton as a mentor. As Benton's commissions were more high profile, Jackson just didn't have the talent to help out, and Benton wasn't allowing Jackson on a lot of jobs anymore. So there's another stinging rejection by a father figure. And a few days after Benton left for Indiana, word reached the Pollock boys in New York that Leroy was very sick. He was only 55 years old, but an entire life of backbreaking work had finally taken its toll. What Leroy knew all these years but never really told anybody about was when he was much younger, he was diagnosed with a heart malfunction. I think it was some sort of valve issue. 
the doctor said he would have a much better shot at not collapsing and dying early if he just worked less and didn't strain his heart. But as we know, he completely ignored the doctor's orders and did nothing but work. And if he didn't have so many kids, maybe he'd have to work less, but you have to keep your family alive. And back then, life was flimsy as shit. The first civilian patient to be treated with penicillin was in March of 1942. If you're wondering, her name was Ann Miller. But my point is, at this point in the story, if you caught an illness, there was a higher than optimal percentage chance that it would kill you. So Leroy decided early that his primary purpose was to make sure that his kids had enough to survive and make the most of their lives, even if he thought the direction their life was taking wasn't in their best interest. Leroy knew this entire time that he was working himself to death. When asked about his illness, Leroy said, quote, too many cold drafts and too little hard work. Which is pretty funny, dark dad joke. Nice work, Leroy. But at 55 years old, it's now been almost 45 years of basically non-stop hardcore labor. The only reason Leroy was even away working at camp at this point at 55 was because money was more important now than ever. Sandy's job was in danger, a bunch of his kids were in New York trying to survive, Stella's not really working. Leroy was the financial safety net that kept this whole thing afloat. And one day, Leroy collapsed and was sent home from the work camp. And for three weeks, he had bouts of nausea, sweating, fever, and a diminished appetite. Stella kept Leroy's health condition from the boys for a really long time, because it's the Pollux. Why would you want to use your words to communicate to each other, and why would you want to deal with a problem head-on? For a while now, Jackson and Leroy had been writing each other letters. Uh, Jackson would try to talk about New York and excitedly explain his art, what artists did for the world. He was, he was trying to get Leroy to be proud of him and show him that he was a functional adult now. But Leroy knew that Jackson was a mess and he would try to write and give advice and direction and provide the fatherly advice that he thought Jackson needed. But it wasn't just advice that Jackson needed from Leroy. Nowhere in the letters did they talk about the fight that they had or what really caused it. They never talked about the love that Jackson never felt from his father, but that he wished he had. And they never talked about the love that Leroy really did feel for Jackson, but he just didn't have the ability to show. And one day Leroy began to complain of shortness of breath and that he was in a lot of pain. Stella was there and so was Marvin slash Jay. Stella treated it like it wasn't that big of a deal and that it was just shortness of breath because Stella is incapable of addressing even this head on. And for many hours, Leroy lay with Stella, and he cried out in pain while she did her best to comfort him. When Marvin slash Jay opened the door, Leroy said to Stella, quote, I don't think I can last until morning. And then Leroy Pollock died. Marvin slash Jay sent a letter to the boys in New York, and he let everyone know that Leroy died, and Jackson didn't go to California. Everybody said that Leroy's death had no visible effect on Jackson, but he was absolutely destroyed. And I think he was confused, too. He was devastated by his father's death, but also frustrated and angry that he never got his father's approval, never got the affection he craved. And with Benton gone and nobody there to guide him, Jackson stopped painting and fully collapsed. For a brief period of time, Jackson tried sculpting instead of painting. Uh, I think he thought in his mind that he was using his hands more with his art and that sculpting would be a form of art that his father would have respected more. He also began to drink even more than before. And however much I talk about Jackson drinking when I say, 
he was drinking more now, and you're thinking, well, this is getting hyperbolic, there's no way he's drinking more now, I assure you he's drinking more now. From a tolerance perspective alone, it's going up, but he is just skyrocketing past anything that you could imagine. And of course, his behavior was getting increasingly scarier and more erratic. Uh, one night, Jackson was out with a bunch of friends, and they were really drunk up at a bar in Harlem, and he got everyone into a knife fight, and his friends had to pull him out before he got stabbed. And another time, Manuel Toligian, who had just started dating a girl that Jackson had a crush on, uh, one night he woke up and Jackson was standing over him, really drunk, holding a knife. So we're bringing knives into this situation now, apparently. So we're way past punching PE teachers in the face. And it's somewhere around the fall of 1933 that Jackson begins to paint again. But instead of trying to paint the way everyone else did, like Benton's regionalism, he finally started allowing his own emotion and his own feelings into his paintings. And holy shit did his art begin to get really dark. I'm going to pose two paintings that Jackson completed from around this time, uh, but a lot of the problem with figuring out Jackson's early works is that he never dated anything, and he just trashed all the stuff he didn't like. So these represent some of the earliest surviving Pollock paintings. And that's going to be up at Art Hall's podcast. And the first is a self-portrait from 1933. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier that Jackson was described by everybody as very handsome, but this self-portrait, how he sees himself, is fucking haunting. And Jackson's art was also starting to explore some of his childhood. His painting started to show some of the insights and all the emotions he wasn't processing, but was now starting to show on canvas. And it is crazy. You can see in the, the second painting, which is called Woman from circa 1930 to 1933, but it's probably closer to 1933. And take a look. It's not hard to figure out that our boy had some serious mommy issues, and there's stuff with maybe some Rita stuff in there, too. It's, he's in a dark place. Charles and Elizabeth found out how bad Jackson's drinking and behavior had gotten, and they decided to let him live with them again. And I don't know if I get the logic on that. Maybe Frank and Marie said they couldn't do it anymore, and it was either that or the street. But everybody is just passing him around. And for a kid who never felt wanted, I can't imagine that level of rejection is good for the psyche. But Charles has an idea. Charles is going to fix all of this. He decided it was time for him and his little brother to take a trip west to see Stella. Stella being the pretext, of course, because this was a brother's road trip. Jackson and Charles, the way Jackson had always dreamed it. Just a couple of bros, windows down, and in a 1926 Model T Ford, not a hobo boxcar, they started their cross-country adventure. But they didn't take a direct route. Charles decided this was the perfect opportunity to address an issue that everybody knew was a problem. Jackson was having a very hard time developing sexually. Charles knew about spaghetti and sympathy. Everybody knew it was happening. Jackson was lagging, obviously, but when he got the drunken nerve to show any romantic interest in a girl, he would either yell at them or sexually assault them. And if it sounds like I'm being flippant about sexual assault, I hope it's obvious that I'm purposely highlighting this stuff, but flippancy is exactly how this was treated back then. It was a thing that happened and then you moved on. Charles mapped out their route, and the boys just happened to take a detour through New Orleans on a sightseeing tour. Or, as Charles had planned out, a prostitution tour. Because everyone in Jackson's life at this point was thinking the same thing. This guy needs a down-home, gumbo-fueled Louisiana handjob. 
Guys, there was no way we weren't going to eventually talk about prostitutes. This is Art Holes, if we learned anything, it's that prostitution will come up. It's cats, horses, and sex work. That is the Mount Rushmore of this show so far. Around the turn of the century, sex work was rampant in New Orleans. New Orleans has always been sort of a throw-up-in-the-street, blowjobs and key bumps in the bathroom kind of city. Even though it's in the South, it's been oddly progressive in some of its public policies, one of which was its stance on sex work. And as a personal matter, I am pro-legalization of sex work, so long as it's regulated and monitored for everyone's safety. I mean, it's happening anyway. Might as well try to curb the human trafficking elements of it, the spreading of STDs. It's either monitored and regulated, or people are just given parking lot blowjobs to strangers with no accountability to anyone involved, except for whatever constitutes street justice. And if you legalize it, you can get tax revenue for things like schools. If we can ensure that public art and music programs are funded with not parking lot blowjobs, I feel like everybody wins. And yes, in my future New Orleans mayoral candidacy, I will be running on the no parking lot blowjobs for the kids platform. It's a can't miss position no matter how you look at it. There's going to be hats. It's going to be great. Anyway, Storyville was a quasi-legal red light district of New Orleans that uh, tightly regulated sex work and tried to get some sort of control on the drug issues down there. The thought process was, if you weren't going to get rid of the problem, you might as well put a condom on it. The municipal codes that regulated sex work were written by a city alderman named Sidney Story. The area was originally called The District, but everybody just called it Storyville. Sidney Story, understandably, not thrilled with the new name. There were famous sex workers in Storyville, like Marguerite Griffin, and madams like Countess Willie Piazza and Josie Arlington. But of course, eventually crusty, butthurt old white men got in the way, and Storyville was shut down in 1917. But that doesn't mean there wasn't a leftover culture of prostitution in 1933. And if there was a safe place for Jackson Pollock to just get that first one out of the way, really crest that hill, it was Storyville, Louisiana. Hence the boy's really roundabout way of getting to California to see Stella. Hey buddy, before we go see mom, let's have you come a couple times. Everybody's a mess in this story. Of the trip, Charles would later say, quote, The women were sitting in doorways inviting us in, any way you like it for a quarter. You need to calm down, Charles, calm down. As for what happened that night in Storyville, we don't know. But we do know that Jackson and Charles never talked about it again, so it probably didn't go well. Eventually, the boys made it back to New York after a relatively uneventful trip out in California. But since it's 1933, we should probably talk about the Great Depression a little more. We haven't discussed it much because it really hadn't hit the Pollock boys as hard as it had hit the rest of America so far. But now things were getting bad. It was to the point now where the Pollock boys were actually concerned about where their next meal would come from. And Jackson, yeah, he handled this new reality with the patience and grace that we'd grown to expect. Uh, when he saw a rich guy walking his dog on the sidewalk, Jackson became so incensed that the wealthy man fed the dog while he went hungry that he punched the guy in the face. But then that guy proceeded to beat the ever-loving shit out of Jackson and put him in the hospital. Eventually, Sandy made the decision to move out to New York in order to take care of Jackson. He told Arlo it was only temporary, but this was a pattern of behavior since they were kids. He was the only one who cared the most and would drop anything if Jackson needed him. And it may also turn out that Sandy enabled Jackson way more than anybody else in the family. So when Sandy moved out to New York to help look after Jackson, uh, it was Jackson who ended up getting a drinking buddy. A pretty consistent drinking buddy. So now it's the two of them wandering the streets of New York, getting drunk and running around. And, and Jackson, you would just scream at women and chase him in the streets. 
let's call that multiple charges of menacing, and Sandy would sometimes have to knock Jackson out cold just to get him to stop. Then he'd drag Jackson to bed. It was bad. And times in general, were they were pretty rough back then. It's hard to conceptualize the Great Depression. I read somewhere that in New York at the time, there were upwards of 60,000 people who would wait in bread lines just for food. Jobs were few and far between, especially for artists. Even rich people weren't buying art because a lot of the former rich people were barely keeping their shit together too. So as part of the government's effort to curb the Great Depression, they started a civil works administration as part of the New Deal. Uh, these were job programs that were government-funded, whether you believe in this economic theory or not, uh, at the time it was the lifeblood for a lot of people. So in order to give jobs to artists, which were usually the first jobs to go, the government also created the Public Works of Art Project. Uh, these programs eventually grew and evolved until we get ourselves to the Works Progress Administration, which we'll call the WPA. Within about four months of it being created in the summer of 1935, I think Jackson's around 23 at this point, there were about 2,000 artists on the WPA government-subsidized payroll. Because Jackson was in that Thomas Hart Benton crew at the league, he would still get some minor jobs on the WPA mural projects that required a little less talent. And if you're one of those people who believes government job programs aren't good because they always end up being way more bloated and inefficient in their expenditures and they grow without oversight in this government waste, don't worry, there was a shitload of that going on too. Not only was there some sketchy payroll inflation and massive waste happening, but people were stealing art supplies for their own personal use. And I think that's what makes these programs so difficult to narrow down as good or bad, because everybody gets talking points on their sides. But really, for our purposes, what we have to know is, the Pollock boys were able to survive the Depression and grow as artists during that period of time because of the WPA subsidization program. It was around this time that Thomas, Benton, and Rita eventually left New York for good, uh, for a few reasons. One of those reasons was, despite all of his bloviating and endless self-promotion, people started to realize that Benton wasn't really that good of an artist. The real North American muralists were Mexican, and their influence had already made its way into America. That's right, America. We've been reaping the cultural benefits of Mexico for a really long time. All of those Benton murals, they were heavily influenced by the work of Mexican muralists. These murals were enormous, and they were full of passion and fear and national pride. And they were spearheaded mainly by three artists, Diego Rivera, Jose Clemente Orozco, and David Alfaro Siqueiros. I think I may have mentioned them in last episode. These guys weren't just artists, they were considered political revolutionaries as well. Of those three, we only really need to know about David Siqueiros right now. David Siqueiros was born in Chihuahua, Mexico in 1896 and first went to jail when he was 13 years old. When he was 14, he left home and joined the Batallón Mamá, which was an army of child soldiers who fought to overthrow Porfirio Diaz, who was then the president of Mexico. For all you military buffs out there, David capped out as a lieutenant at 15 years old. Siqueiros became a radical Marxist-Leninist who was a member of the Mexican Communist Party and was also a very talented artist. He was known as, quote, the naughty boy of Mexican art, and he painted almost exclusively in revolutionary themes. And I'll post an example of a Siqueiros mural. They're pretty cool. Siqueiros had a very aggressive and passionate view of art, and he said the goal of art should be, quote, one of beauty for all, of education, and of battle. 
He would take the battle part pretty seriously when years later in 1940, Sakaros led 20 men with machine guns to the house of Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky and his wife, and they shot up the house in a failed assassination attempt. But don't worry, because later that year, a Spanish communist named Ramon Mercader would remedy that. He entered the studio of Leon Trotsky under the assumed name of Jacques Mornard, so now we've got a French communist from Spain. And that guy took an ice axe, and he buried it in Trotsky's skull and killed him. And I don't know much about Leon Trotsky, but it sounds like people really didn't like him very much. But there's clearly a reason why we're discussing David Sikaros right now. And that's because in February 1936, at a time where Jackson was reeling from the loss of his father and the loss of Benton as a mentor, when he was desperate for a father figure, David Sikaros made his way from Los Angeles to New York as part of an artist exchange program. It was actually Sandy who knew Sikaros first. He met Sikaros back in Los Angeles. And when Sikaros moved to New York, Sandy introduced him to Jackson in Sikaros' new art studio in Union Square. And Sikaros immediately took to Jackson. Sikaros himself was a little more emotion-forward rather than logical. You know, like organizing a failed 20-person machine gun assassination attempt. And he knew there was something bottled up in Jackson, and he loved it. And as Jackson is looking to fill the vacant father role with someone who will just acknowledge his emotions, he's gone through Krishnamurti the literally perfect, Thomas Hart Benton who threw epic tantrums and was a goddamn mess, and now we have Sikaros, who is a passionate revolutionary and flies off the handle all the time as well. So right now everybody is pushing this mess of a kid to act on emotion, and I don't know if that's a great idea. For Jackson, Sikaros represented someone who could not only fill a void, but also provided a massive infusion of art knowledge and new techniques. Sikaros was way, way more technically talented and creative than Benton was. Sikaros is more known for doing whatever the fuck he wanted with paint, from playing with it to changing how he applied it, where Benton was more of a traditionalist. And new synthetic resins and manufacturing techniques made lacquer paint more commercially available and much cheaper. So Sikaros had the League crew just do whatever they could with it. They would take lacquer paint and they would play with it. They would burn it, add bits of metal to it, chemicals. They would spray it, throw it, hit it with axes. They apply it to anything they could just to see what it did. They were basically like little art scientists. And they would apply the paint to walls, large panels. The trending thought in New York now was if you were still working with an easel, enjoy that. Your time had passed. It was all about big. In the WPA, the Public Works Project for the Arts, they were commissioning all sorts of things in New York, like large murals, you know, so there was always work available. And Sikaros was teaching Jackson more than Jackson ever thought possible, even though he was a terrible role model for Jackson's behavior. Jackson also had his brother Sandy by his side, getting ridiculously drunk all the time, so he felt safe. He could just nuzzle into this weird little life he created. Which is exactly why Sandy didn't want to tell Jackson that he had proposed to Arloy, who was still living back in California. Sandy decided that he couldn't have this adult little boy life with Jackson forever, and I think Arloy probably told him to make the call or she'd take a walk. Arloy got to New York on July 25th, 1936, and Sandy and Arloy got married. Jackson was one of the witnesses to the wedding, and of course, was completely shit-faced drunk during the ceremony. I don't think we talked about a living situation in a while, but Jackson and Sandy were doing okay with the WPA money, so they had an apartment together. And now that Sandy and Arloy were married, they were in one room and Jackson was in the other. 
Orloy was conscious about not trying to radically change the dynamic right away. She sort of tried to ease Jackson into the situation, which, I'll be honest, was extremely courteous of her and arguably not something she had to do. Orloy went above and beyond to stay out of the way in her own home and accommodate this hot mess of a grown adult. I feel like we have to remind ourselves that Jackson's like 24 at this point. That's like 35 years old in 1936 years. As you can imagine, he wasn't really handling very well everyone around him getting married, especially his brothers. Frank and Marie, the wonderful elderly neighbors from Bayonne, New Jersey, they were also married at this point. And I'm pretty sure Charles and Elizabeth were too. But everyone, they were a little worried that they weren't going to be able to move on with their lives if they have to keep dealing with Jackson. So they were on high alert to find somebody that Jackson could marry, which, I gotta be honest, feels like a very lofty goal at this point. One night, everybody was at a party, and Elizabeth introduced Jackson to the hostess. She was apparently very smart, and she was in her late 30s, so she had the life experience and patience and understanding to deal with somebody like Jackson. She was described by Elizabeth as, quote, a lovely person. Which is just a very nice way to describe somebody. No one has ever described me as a lovely person. Maybe deep down he's a good person, but I don't even know the character traits that one would have to have to be called a lovely person. So Jackson drank a shitload of wine and walked across the room to this lovely woman and screamed in her face, quote, You are the ugliest goddamn old bitch I ever saw. So that went poorly. Another time, Charles and Elizabeth went to Jackson, Sandy, and Arloy's apartment during the day and were shocked to see Jackson had brought someone home. Well, actually, they first heard, quote, scuffling and a girl's frightened protest. And when they saw what was happening, Jackson was trying to push this young girl into his bedroom and she was fighting back. Okay, we're going to call that assault and battery, probably some sort of attempted sexual assault, and uh, at least attempted kidnapping. She apparently looked scared to death as he pushed her in and slammed the door shut. But then minutes later, they were screaming and he was pushing her down the hall and out of the building. I feel like it was nine months ago that we were talking about cults. Do you remember when cults were a part of this story? I am legitimately exhausted already. I can only imagine what it would be like to be around him. Now mostly left to his own devices, Jackson would wander nightly to the bars on 14th and 6th in New York. And by midnight, he was plastered. And by about 2 a.m., he was usually in that stumble and puke on yourself while trying to fight everyone phase. Sometimes he'd pass out in parks or alleys, and friends and family would have to literally drag him home and up the stairs to bed. They would call the maneuver the clump and slide, because that's the sound it made. And when they put him to bed, sometimes he would just lash out while crying. And they gave him coffee after, so that's fine, I guess. And of course, Arloy, she feels like a prisoner in her own home. She was terrified of Jackson, and she locked herself in a room until Jackson went to bed. And it was in the winter of 1936 that Jackson was drunk at the Artists' Union Christmas party, and he decided to make a bold move on a young woman he saw, who just happened to be dancing with somebody else. When did you leave heaven? How could they let you go? So he drunkenly stepped up between them and came face to face with a woman who was described as, quote, slightly older with an intriguingly unattractive face prominent nose, heavily lidded eyes, and a protruding mouth that she kept closed to hide her bad teeth, but a taut, proud body, unquote. I know I usually forget to say unquote, and I know that annoys some people, but I bolded an underlined unquote here. I didn't want to be attributed the phrase, a taut, proud body. That just sort of skeeved me out. And then Jackson just starts to drunkenly rub his body up against hers and said, quote, do you like to fuck? 
again, unquote. She could feel his erection while he dry hump danced on her. Said a witness of this event, quote, It was like when a dog gets on your leg. He was trying to have an orgasm. Unquote. So this proud, taut body of a woman hauls off and clocks Jackson in the face. Yes, we finally have ourselves a hero of this story. And Jackson was immediately taken back and he apologized. Too sweet. But they oddly kept talking and later that night she eventually went home with him and they spent the night together. Why? Why? And of course everyone else asked why. Years later she would tell people, quote, I was intrigued. I liked him. And with a mentor who encouraged pouring his soul into his art, Jackson started to take a little more shape artistically. Sequeiro's thought process was, if he pushed Jackson to be more emotional, Jackson would understand more what he wanted in a mural so he could be a better assistant. He also had no idea the Pandora's box that he was helping to open. Sandy started to see it more, though, especially when Jackson drunkenly tried to choke a guy to death at a holiday party, which only stopped when Sandy walked over and punched Jackson and knocked him out cold. For the next year, Jackson was in a constant cycle of depression and drinking binges, menacing women at a constant clip, fucking up at work to the point that he may almost get fired. Because eventually government programs get put in check. Maybe not as much as people would like, but the WPA artist subsidy program started to get check-in requirements and output requirements for the artists. And these were things like attendance requirements, and you had to submit so many paintings per month of a certain quality, things like that. By 1938, the WPA was trying to trim the fat, cut out the people who were leeching on the program. And Jackson couldn't keep up. He was so drunk all the time that people had to submit art on his behalf just to keep him employed. Finally, one day, Jackson disappeared in a four-day bender in the Lower East Side, drinking, quote, sherry wine and rot gut around the clock. Of course, I had to look up rot gut, and it's basically a super low-quality liquor. Rot gut, bathtub gin, all of those really low-quality, high-octane alcohols were created during the Prohibition and were made with zero regard for taste. So not only was Jackson getting blackout drunk daily, but he was doing it in a very unenjoyable way. He was passing out and getting woken up by the cops and gutters full of everyone else's piss, and then he'd just start drinking again. And on June 9th, 1938, Jackson got fired from the WPA. They just couldn't cover for him anymore. And on June 12th, Sandy drives Jackson to Bloomingdale's, which is a private asylum near White Plains, New York, which is upstate uh, about 20, 30 minutes north of New York City. 1930s private asylums? Not exactly awesome. And Jackson was classified as a voluntary patient, but not really the case. And he was not thrilled and wanted out immediately. Jackson was terrified of hospitals. And I'm guessing it's because he never went to one as a kid, and the only one that was near them was a tuberculosis ward where everyone died with blood exploding from their mouths. It was there that Jackson was treated by James Harden Wall, an expert on alcohol abuse, to the extent that anyone was an actual expert back then. But we still can't use the word alcoholic in relation to Jackson, but alcohol abuse was this guy's emerging specialty. Wall also had a foundation in Freudian-based psychology, which is different than Jungian psychology, uh, and this difference actually becomes acutely relevant to this story, so we should probably take two minutes and discuss the difference in a very broad sense. If you're a psychiatrist or a psychologist out there and you're listening, I know it's not this simple, but it also sort of is. 
Sigmund Freud was a huge proponent of digging into your past and determining how past trauma, past experiences help shape you and your behavioral patterns through psychoanalysis. By learning about your trauma and coming to grips with it, you can work with it and change your behavior and become more in control of the why of the, of the what you're doing. Carl Jung, on the other hand, very generally was not about the psychoanalysis. He was about starting from a clean slate when you start therapy. He thought that everyone had the potential to be healthy and well-adjusted. They just needed to tap into a collective unconsciousness, and there were instinctive archetypes, too. He basically thought that there was a primordial humanness in whatever happened in your previous life. You wipe that clean moving forward and try to get healthy, I guess? I don't know. It's a little unclear because it's absolutely fucking horseshit. Jung also originated the concept of synchronicity, which is the idea that events can be meaningful coincidences and that random events can be connected, and then he argued that it proved the existence of the paranormal. And Jungian psychology is where we also get the Myers-Briggs personality test, which again, complete horseshit. There aren't 16 personality types just because some guy said so when you watch three TED Talks on YouTube. You're reducing the infinite complexity of human experience to easily categorize concepts because it's, it's neater to process. And if you throw somebody into a category and move on, it, that's great. It, Myers-Briggs is, is reductive and it feeds on our need to easily categorize things so we don't have to think critically about them. And then it creates a feedback loop of confirmation bias. But I'm a fucking idiot. What do I know? Unfortunately, we're going to have to talk about this horse shit in a lot more detail later, but right now, all we need to know is that Wall is a Freudian psychologist. But it's only 1938, so psychoanalysis is still relatively new. We're in a world where Freud himself is just about to die, and psychoanalysis is in its very, very nascent stages. It wasn't perfect, but people were starting to understand that formative years are just that. Formative. So Dr. Wall, using Freudian analysis, finally broke Jackson down and got him to talk about everything from his past. And Dr. Wall keyed in on Jackson's abandonment issues from being ignored his whole childhood, having an alcoholic father who abandoned them, and then having to deal with Leroy's death, having a mother who was dominant but also withheld affection as contributing to his rage against women, and even the sexual side effects of being an alcoholic through puberty and how his just distorted his sexual development. The problem was, though Wall was good at identifying these issues, the fields of psychology and psychiatry were not that advanced yet, so therapists didn't really know how to deal with patients who told them everything they wanted to hear. And that's exactly what Jackson did. He basically flattered Dr. Wall and charmed him into thinking his theories were working, and he was doing everything possible to trick his way out of hospitalization. But the one area that therapy did help Jackson was he was now pouring his emotional and psychological issues into his art. And as that happened, his art became more and more abstract and crazy and, quote, psychologically charged. And I'm aggregating and combining a bunch of other theories that are out there, but here's what I think is happening. Jackson was never really a talented artist and drafter in the conventional sense. His art was blunted by his ability. But when you abstract an image, you don't really have to think about whether the image is technically executed or whether the person is painting with skill. You're, you're in a better position to bypass thought and just put rawness on canvas. So the more he abstracted, the more Jackson was putting himself on canvas, just like Krishnamurti the Literally Perfect told him. Feel, don't think. So Jackson's art got better when he had to think less because he could just paint with raw feeling and instinct. And as Jackson was manipulating Dr. Wall into thinking his therapy sessions were working, Dr. Wall was becoming more convinced that Jackson was ready to leave the hospital. 
But what was really happening was that Jackson was actually getting worse. All he wanted to do was wash his hands of his past, and Dr. Wall forced him to relive it. And that made him angry and resentful, and now all of that pain is in the forefront of his consciousness. So now Jackson is about to leave the hospital, arguably worse than when he went in, and he has absolutely zero new coping skills to deal with it. So we'll see how that goes in the next episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you're enjoying the show, just throw me five stars uh, right in there that you're doing it for Leroy. Again, it's dumb. I know that. But it's how Apple and iTunes measures everything. So, um, all right. I'll talk to everybody next episode. Where did you hide your halo? Where did you park your wings? Have they missed you? Can you get back here? If I kissed you, would it be?